Please do not leave here today thinking that Pastor Brogy teaches that salvation is by works because I do not believe that. But please don't leave here today thinking that I think that you can say you're saved and never have your life changed. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 2 of our study of the book of Romans. While the first chapter was primarily aimed at a Gentile audience, as the Apostle Paul proceeds with his discourse, he then warns his Jewish readers that they are equally condemned sinners in the eyes of a holy God. This undoubtedly did not sit well with some people who felt themselves justified because, as Jews, they were God's chosen people and who possessed the law handed down to them by God through Moses. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy reflects on God's impartiality when it comes to the matter of sin. You know, I meet people sometimes and I ask them why God should let them into heaven, and they go on some discourse about how they were raised in the church, how they were baptized, how they were a member and their attendance, or that their father or grandfather was a preacher. Big deal. Privileges mean little. In fact, they make you even more guilty, as we will see before we're done with Romans. And so Paul's making it very clear that just because you have a Bible or you don't have a Bible, there is still no impartiality with God. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What mattered was not simply their possession of the law, be it written or in the human heart, but their obedience to the law. You say, well, how does someone who does not have a Bible, how does someone who does not have the written law of God be held accountable to the same standard? Well, verses 14 and 15 explain why God can use the exact same principle of condemnation against the man who has no Bible as the one who is raised with a Bible. Follow and understand what he's saying. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. So there are two corresponding facts here about Gentiles that are plainly stated. First, they do not have the law. It's stated twice in verse 14. Externally, they did not possess the Bible. They did not have the Old Testament scriptures. But secondly, he says they do have the law internally. How so? In that they are a law to themselves. Now pay attention. Gentiles who do not have the written scriptures nonetheless instinctively do them by nature. Why? Because they are a law to themselves. He doesn't mean by that that they write their own laws and contract their own morality. But what he does mean is that in their own human person, they are created with God's law from within. Notice, these not having the law are a law to themselves. How so, Paul? Verse 15. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So although they do not have the Bible in their hands, they have the requirement of God's law in their hearts because God wrote it there. 
That is why innately you know the difference between right and wrong, what is fair, what is unfair, what is just and what is unjust, because God wrote his principle of law into your conscience. You are made in the image and likeness of God, and that image is borne out in your person, in your heart, where God wrote his law. It's a reflection of God's character. And so it doesn't matter whether they have a Bible or not. They all have some knowledge of God, as we saw in chapter 1 through creation, and as he argues here in chapter 2 through conscience. Now notice how God wrote his law into their hearts. This is difficult, but again, we need to think it through. And that they, verse 15, they, even pagan Gentiles who have never seen a Bible, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Your conscience, unless you have damaged it and seared it and branded it and calloused it through habitual unrepentant sin, will give you a negative disapproving voice when you do what is wrong. And so in the minds and hearts of people who have never read or heard the Bible, there's this interior dialogue that goes on, alternately either accusing or defending them. It's like being in a courtroom where there's a prosecuting an attorney and a defense attorney, and they both present their respective cases. And so Paul is arguing that within the man, there's a dialogue and a debate that goes on. Three key words. I have them underlined in my text. The first word is hearts. Our hearts on which the requirements of law, the law have been written. Our conscience, underscore the word conscience, our conscience that prods and reproves us. And then he mentions here our thoughts, underscore the word thoughts that usually accuse us or sometimes excuse us. Now there are a lot of people and a growing number of young people in America. 80% of the children under the age of 12 this morning are not in church. We're becoming like Western Europe, more and more pagan. And I meet a lot of young adults, 18 to 25, when I mention some basic biblical facts like Adam or Moses or Noah, they don't have a clue as to what you're speaking about. But nonetheless, Paul is saying they are just as accountable because God in their hearts has placed his law. And that's why there's not a society on the face of the earth that does not have a set of moral standards that they try to apply. Sometimes those moral standards through suppression of truth become warped and distorted as they are ever so becoming in this nation of ours, but nonetheless they have standards. And this is why we are accountable. Now some people may look for an exception. Very often people have said to me, well, what about the Jewish people? I mean, they are the chosen people. Certainly, God plans to save all the Jews. And of course, that's not the case. Very simply, Jews that have Jesus are saved, and Jews that do not are not saved. The same is true as Gentiles. Gentiles who have Jesus are saved. Gentiles who do not have Jesus are not saved. Some people think, well, you know, Jews are lost. That's what Christians say. And, and Gentiles are going to heaven. No, it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. You're saved or not based on whether or not you have Jesus as your Savior. Now, how can Paul make such a blanket statement? 
that a man with the Bible or a man without the Bible needs Christ. Notice verse 13, because of what he says here. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. God's point is that just having a Bible is not enough. It's not enough for you to come here and read your Bible and follow along and nod your head and say amen. It's not enough for you to agree with me. People say, well, I'm a member of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Wonderful. But you can die and go to hell straight from a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. You see, it's not just the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law are just. And by nature, none of us are doers. And unless we have a birth from above, you will not be, as a way of life, a doer of the law. Someone told a parable once about a theater filled and packed out wanting to hear a a famous actor act on the stage. And just before he went out on the stage, the owner of the stage said, Sir, there's a a small fire that has broken out in the back room and the, the people are anxious, they're on edge to see you and I'm afraid if I go out, they'll boo me and I need you to go out on the stage because I know they will listen to you. Now it's under control, but if we can get the people out in an orderly fashion, there will be no problem. So I need you to go and tell them that there's a small fire that we have under control. So he went out on the stage and as soon as he walked out, they all stood to their feet. They began to applaud and cheer for two minutes. Finally got them quiet. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make and I need you to listen very, very carefully. There's a small fire, and I say a small fire, in the back of this stage. We have it under control, but we need to leave. We need to postpone this event. We need to go out quietly and orderly, and everyone will be safe. And it was dead silent. And a man stood up, and he said, that's good. That's real good. And he began to applaud, and he said, oh, no, no, ladies and gentlemen, this is not an act. There's a real fire and we need to get up orderly and carefully and leave this auditorium immediately. Another man stood up and said, bravo, bravo, that's even better. And he got down on his knees and he began to beg and plead with them. Ah, that's a parable of sorts. But here in verse 13, the apostle Paul wants us to know that God does not want your applause. He wants your obedience. James said it this way, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You know, there are people who come to church and hear me preach and they say, oh, that's a good sermon. Bravo, pastor. And all the while, while I'm warning some of them to get their lives right or to flee from the coming judgment of God, they think that I'm speaking to someone else. There are people who are cheering and saying, don't we have a wonderful Bible-believing church? And Paul's argument here in verses 12 and 13 is just because you have a Bible, Mr. Jew, and just because you have a conscience, Mr. Gentile, that doesn't mean that you are right with God, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. And again, lest you think that Paul is teaching salvation by works, if you look across the page to Romans 3 and verse 20, he will plainly say, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, 
for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul is not some kind of schizophrenic where on the one hand he's teaching salvation by grace, on the other hand he's teaching salvation by works. He is simply reiterating in verse 13 what he plainly said in verses 6 through 10, that good deeds are the evidence or proof of conversion. When Jesus came to Zacchaeus' home, that converted tax collector, Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now why did he say that to Zacchaeus? Because again, it's the same truth here in verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In Luke 18, Jesus dealt with the root of salvation where he told a parable between the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the tax collector in all of his shame, unwilling to even look up into heaven, said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. But in Luke 19, he deals not with the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. That's why, for the same reason, Jesus could say in John 8 of Jews who said they believed him, that they were really unbelieving. He said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. In other words, if you have the faith of Abraham, then show the faith of Abraham. For the same reason, the Apostle James could write, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Romans 2.13 is the Apostle Paul's version of James 2.17 or Jesus' version of John 8.39. God does not give justification to you by works. But if God has justified you, you will indeed work. It's not faith plus work saves you, but it's a faith that does work that saves you. Works are the fruit of salvation. And so right before James says faith without works is dead, he has already said, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. No human being, no Jew with the written law or Gentile with the law written to his heart has ever kept the whole law perfectly. So there's no possibility for salvation on that road. Please do not leave here today thinking that Pastor Brogy teaches that salvation is by works because I do not believe that. But please don't leave here today thinking that I think that you can say you're saved and never have your life change. There are many who profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Let me show you one other passage. Turn to the book of Galatians, would you? Galatians chapter 2. There are four little books that stick together. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The subject of Galatians is sanctification, how to grow up in Christ. But to deal with these who had developed an erroneous view of sanctification, he brings them all the way back to their justification. He reminds them how they started on the basis of grace through faith and that they are now to walk on the basis of grace through faith. The problem was is that there were some false teachers who were delivering what Paul calls another gospel, which is really not another, because there's only one. And he says, even if we are an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, let him be damned. 
What was the gospel these false teachers taught? They taught that Jesus was Lord, God in human flesh, that he came to die a substitutionary death on the cross, that he physically, literally shed his blood, was actually raised from the dead. But what he did was not enough. That you also must be circumcised in order to be saved. And people do the same thing today. We have a very large church south of us that teach what Jesus did is not enough. You must add baptism if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. Some would say membership or something else. And so Paul here in Romans, uh, Galatians 2.15 says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We're, we're not Gentile sinners, he argues. We're Jewish sinners, nevertheless. Knowing that a man is not saved or justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified. Drop down to verse 21 in your Bible. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He said, I'm not making God's death on the cross meaningless, because if there's something you can do to add to what Jesus did, you're nullifying his work on the cross. Now turn over to Galatians 3. Listen, if works could save you, Jesus would not have had to have died. That's his point in 2.21. He could have just come as a model, and then he could have ascended into heaven ever before the crucifixion. But he didn't come as a model. He came as a substitute. Chapter 3, verse 8, the scripture, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, we're going to study that in depth when we come to Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Why? For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Unless you obey the law perfectly, Paul says, you are cursed. Now understand, if you have the faith of Abraham, you turn over another page to chapter 5 and verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's not saying Christians can't sin. He's just given an exhortation in 5.16 to walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. But if you are born of the Spirit, then the direction of your life is different. Those who belong to Christ have said no to the sin nature as a principle with all of its passions and desires. You see, theoretically, you have one of three chances of getting into heaven. And underscoring your thinking theoretically, unless you accuse me this morning of heresy. It's just like a man going to bat. Three strikes and you're out. Now the first way you can go to heaven is to die before the age of accountability. An age, no doubt, that is different for different children. Some little children die before they are accountable before God. And by extension, I think you could add to that those who are severely mentally handicapped, who do not have the brain power to understand the gospel with the Spirit's help, and still others who maybe have been aborted or miscarried as little babies. 
If you want some scriptural support, let me give you at least three texts. And this is important. This is one of the most, ten most commonly asked questions. And we're going to spend three weeks on it later this year. One helpful text would be 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. If you know the passage... David's little infant is deathly sick and he's praying and fasting and seeking the face of Almighty God. And by the body language, by the uh, action of his servants, they, he perceives that his little baby has now died. And of course, they're afraid to tell David. They reason if he's so grieved while his baby is alive, hoping that maybe God will intervene and heal the child. What will he do? Maybe he'll even harm himself when he finds out the baby is dead. But David, perceiving the child is dead, he gets up, he cleans up, he goes and worships God, and then he sits down for a meal. And then the servants come to him and they say, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive... I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. King David no longer had to grieve like those who had no hope because he knew at his own death he would see that child. Now there are some who sloppily exegete the passage and say, he's just going to the grave with his boy when he dies someday. They miss the whole point and spirit of the text. Let me give you another passage. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. Matthew 18, 1 to 14. Let me read it to you. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then? is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he called a child and set him before them. In this case, we're not dealing with an infant like with David, but a child that the Lord sets before him in the parallel account in Luke 9, 46. It said he stood by his side. Now notice carefully what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus in this passage and other passages like it compares the kingdom of heaven to little children. Now please understand, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. And he never used in any of his teaching parable or, or illustrations some untruth to teach truth. Jesus, who is the truth, always used truth to teach truth. And so for Jesus to use an erroneous illustration to make a tr truth would contradict himself and he never, ever, ever once did that. Now drop down to verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. God obviously does not look favorably and those who physically, mentally, sexually, or in some other way abuses a child. See, he says that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 14, he plainly says, So it is, not, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Period. Jot down this text, Matthew, or Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 42. Mark 9, 33 to 42. This is a different occasion, as the context indicates, but the same problem 
one of their favorite discussions all the way to the upper room was to discuss who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who's going to be the big shot in the coming kingdom? It's a discussion they often got into. And Jesus would repeat himself. Why? Because we learn by repetition. And then there are always new hearers who are hearing it for the first time. Mark 9, 33, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Of course, he knew, but they kept silent. For on the way, they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Jesus had rebuked them before, but now they're like little kids. They've gotten their hand caught in the cookie jar, and Jesus just asked the question, what what were you guys talking about? Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them. Now, I don't know exactly how old this little child is, but I do know that I usually did not hold my children in my arms, at least not for very long, by the time they reached seven or eight years of age. In either case, it's a small child. And Jesus says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And again, the Lord's repeating himself for emphasis, a teaching tool that you need to emulate. If you hear me preach and repeat myself and you get turned off, then go home and confess your sin because you have a heart problem. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble... It would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Notice Jesus describes this little one as having faith. The tender and receptive spirit of very little children, Jesus equates to an adult who understands or believes in him. Mark 10, across the page, verse 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I am so pleased with hundreds of our people, either through the Awana ministry or children's choirs or Sunday morning and Sunday school or in ministry in our nurseries at different times during the week when we gather or in vacation Bible school and other events. They're ministry to little children. A mark of Christ-likeness, a mark that you are a growing Christian is that you're not bothered by children. You know, we have hundreds of children here every Sunday, over 400 on a typical Sunday. And they need to be cared for. And many that are coming do not have parents who are believers. And they need to be loved. And so many of you do not have the attitude, well, this is my family. And I'm just going to hang with my family on Sunday morning. No, you have the attitude that Christ had towards children and that the disciples were to have, that you ministered to children even that were not your children. You know, you have 168 hours in a week. You can still worship corporately as a family every Sunday morning. We only have your kids at best four hours. Listen, the other 164 hours, you can teach your children as you walk on the way, as you rise up, and as you sit down. Now, let me ask you a question this morning concerning the accountability of a child. If you were able to follow that argument, would you raise your hand? Just raise it high so I can see it. All right? That tells me you're accountable. 
that you have not died before the age of accountability. So strike one against you. For a copy of today's message from Romans chapter 2, part 2 of The Judgment of the Respectable Sinner, use the Search the Scriptures app available through the Apple iTunes Store or the Android Google Play Store. Also, you can visit our website at searchthescriptures.org. Or, as always, call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM8 or any of Dr. Brogy's messages. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the judgment of the respectable sinner. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>